this is the hindu on books a weekly podcast from india's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature hello and welcome to the on books podcast i'm divya gandhi your host for today and i have with me the author artist and photographer aarti kumar rao who's out with her new book margin lands Margin Lands documents her travels across some of the remotest landscapes in the country. Over the last decade, Arti has taken personal loans and exhausted her savings to visit corners of the subcontinent that journalism leaves largely unexplored. The Sundarbans mangroves, the Thar Desert, Goa's tide pools, and she has come to know intimately the tumultuous lives the people of these landscapes lead. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Divya and the Hindu. Arti, how do you choose the varied landscapes you decide to explore? The way this my whole journey started, of course, was that uh, I was in a cafe with um, S. Vishwanath, who is Zen Rain Man, and uh, he mentioned to me when he heard that I wanted to work on freshwater issues. He said, "You know, you should go to the desert and meet a man called Chhatar Singh." And I thought it was an odd way to start. um a series and i wanted to work deeply on freshwater so i thought it was not way to start working on freshwater by starting in the desert but nevertheless i knew he knew better so i went there and there i think began this very long journey about um, that is that's basically exploration um of freshwater and how it connects to various themes but then one thing leads to another and you know it's it's all interconnected and i just follow the stories based on these threads that i pick up and these uh, interconnecting you know issues excellent uh could you tell us about your method of slow and immersive journalism long observations as you put it you visit the same places several times over and have come to know incredible people and their resilience this again started in the desert uh, divya it was when i visited for the first time it was the height of summer and uh, everything was dry there was no water to be seen and the stories that i was hearing was about a desert full of water you know which held the held water in its belly and i called up my editor saying there is no way i'll be able to report on the story or even tell the story without seeing the cycle the cycle the rhythm of life in the desert how people adapt how the landscape adapts to to changing um, to, to everything that changes when the rains come and i told him i'd have to come back maybe not once or twice maybe 5 6 7 i ended up going back nine times in a year just to be able to understand how people and how the land adapts to things that happen and uh, that i realized was the essence of being able to tell a story deeply the essence being understanding these rhythms and understanding the the landscape and what it was saying and how people were adapting to it and so i realized that that is the only way i will be happy telling stories and i adopted that same method even when it came to the other end the opposite end of india which is the northeastern end and you know, the ganga brahmaputra basin where also i worked so i keep going back to those places across seasons across years and as uh, rilke puts it um he says this of art but i believe it to be true about landscape storytelling as well 
um, he says that um, one year doesn't matter and 10 years are nothing. And truly, that's the case because the landscape is constantly changing. So I do believe I have embarked on something that I'll be doing for the rest of my life. And so that's, uh, you know, and that's the only way I know, know to do it. So how do you respond to the changes, both good and bad, that you've observed in these landscapes over the decade? Well, I try to document everything that I see. And um, good and bad, I feel constantly, you know, are, are labels that we apply. It's, it's also uh, maybe in some ways, in the big scheme of things, uh, you know, it's just a way of, uh, it's, it's a lens that we might apply. But what is actually happening to the land, what is actually um, the changes that are going through, um, that it's going through, I mean, it can change. So I go back, uh, I see something happening and then I go back and I think it's good, but then I go back in another season and I'm thinking, oh my God, no, you know, because there was there was something that was an unintended consequence of something that happened, which I thought was good. So various things, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. First of all, well, there's two ways to look at it. One is that it is incredibly rich in terms of storytelling. You go back and you see the changes and you're able to document it, especially when you document it over time, you're able to look at it from a you know 30,000 foot view and um, be able to glean, you know, certain understandings. You go back in history and, you know, you're able to then understand how you got here based on what happened in history. So that understanding is, is, is very interesting, and I respond very positively to that. But oftentimes what we do to the land is quite debilitating, and uh, it diminishes the resilience of the people who live on it and of the biodiversity that depends on it. And that hurts. It hurts so much so that I also know that I'm able to leave. I'm able to come back to my life in Bangalore, and that privilege of mine um, bears down pretty heavily on me. So it's it's a mental battle as well, you know, uh, when I see the changes and I see the tough situations that people are living in and um, and the fact that they their options to up and leave are hard, very hard, you know, and they, they have to make very tough decisions if that's what they want to do. Whereas for me, I'm able to leave. So I know that that privilege is is uh, is is a some is something else, and I'm very acutely aware of it. Um, and mentally, that's a tough one to tackle. But nothing compared to the kind of uh, kind of pain that the people living in these uh, destroyed and environmentally degraded landscapes have to go through. Uh, you've said that you've always been drawn to the imagery in the storytelling of Tagore and Satyajit Ray. Uh, how does it reflect in your work? I hope it reflects in my work. I cannot say that it reflects in my work. I really hope it does. If it does, then, you know, I'll be thrilled and uh, over the moon. Um, I can only say that Rabindranath Tagore has had a very deep influence on me. I read his books, you know, I think when I was in maybe eighth grade, in, you know, I was 11, 12, 13 years old when I started reading Tagore. And uh, his stories conjured up, I read it in English. I can only imagine what it must be like to read it in Bengali. Um, but even in English, his stories conjured up such vivid imagery that it uh, it was almost like I felt I was in those landscapes. And when I started visiting Bengal, I realized, oh, my God, this has just come alive for me. You know, those stories came alive for me. And same with Satyajit Ray, especially Pater Panchali. And um, I was, I'm just very drawn 
to to that kind of imagery. And then I came upon Satyajitra's sketchbooks, and I was just blown away. Right, everything about those uh, sketchbooks also uh, spoke to me. And I have no idea, but I think those those influences maybe subconsciously somewhere they have influenced the way I see or the way I tell stories. I would like to think that they have because I immensely admire these two people. And I think the reader and the viewer will have to tell me if, if there are certain echoes of uh, of their work and if I have uh, you know truly um, kind of imbibed the essence of their storytelling, which I think is the pinnacle of storytelling. Super. Uh, you worry that we may be fast losing our rich landscape lexicon, such as the 40 names for clouds that people of the Thar have. Tell us what inspired your glossary of local words. You know, this is what I mean. This is, again, you know, it's it's a hat tip to slow storytelling. And I spend, spent a lot of time with Chatar Singh, okay? And this was not during the one year that I was with him um, going back repeatedly. This was an another time when I just went back because I wanted to spend time with him. We're sitting in this angan drinking chai, endless cups of chai, because that's where the conversation happens. And um, I just happened to look up and I was like, oh, you know, these uh, these clouds seem like it's going to rain. He looked up and he said, no, they won't rain. And he said, do you know we have 40 names of clouds and my son doesn't know them? And it was just a casual mention. And I probed a little bit about the 40 names because I was intrigued. But that top, that just that casual mention, it it devolved into a long form essay and a way of thinking for me from then on. And this was eight years ago. And it's just stayed with me. And everywhere I go, it's it's this, I realized this intimate connection between language and how we view. Uh, the environment, nature, the land around us. And these words that the locals who live very closely, uh, close to the land and uh, very intimately with nature have for how they describe what they see and how they live and how they uh, interact with what they see is the essence of treating the land with reverence and treating it well. The minute you start losing that lexicon, the minute that you, you start losing those words that you have to describe the areas and your way of life, you disconnect from uh, from that. And then you it's very easy then for interlopers and charlatans to hijack the narrative and um, and use marketing and you know all kinds of things to impose upon the land things that are not at all good for it, which is exactly what has happened and has landed us in the mess that we're in globally. It's not just us, it's everywhere, right? And uh, that lexicon, that rich landscape lexicon that is that exists among indigenous communities everywhere across the world is the is I truly believe is the holds the answers for survival, for adaptation, for resilience in the face of this extremely important and potentially devastating um, thing we're facing, the specter of climate change. How does the process of illustration and photography assist the stories you recall? Oh, um, Oh my, I can't do without them. They, they are memory aids, but they've also taught me to see. Um, but photography has taught me to see even without the camera. You know, when you look through the camera and you're trying to make a photograph, you're very acutely aware of the light, but then you take the camera away and it has basically taught you to see 
the sea light, the sea shadows, to see how things are thrown into relief at certain times of the day. And you see features of the land and features of people even, their faces sculpted by light. So photography teaches you how to see and feel light. Um, illustration teaches you how to observe you know, the details that maybe photography misses because you're so intent on capturing the scene that you miss the details. And illustration, when you sit down to sketch something, you begin to notice details. And then that informs storytelling so deeply because, you know, details are what make the story. And um, so both illustration and photography are memory aids for me. So I sometimes sketch when I'm in a field. Sometimes I sketch when I come back to the room because based on what I've heard and so on. But there is one other layer and that is sound, uh, which I feel is often neglected and something that I have um, I have started paying a lot of attention to after walking across India with Paul Salopek, some part of India with Paul Salopek. Sound is such a rich information um, device. It's a layer of, of storytelling that we are often, we often, um, you know, drown out with with uh, with maybe music or something like that. But the innate sound of a landscape or of people talking, inflections in their voices, that holds uh, another level of information, which is just so important. And I think taken together with illustration photography. Um, sound also is um, is a very integral part of my storytelling and it's going to be even more so going forward. Right. And finally, Aarti, what do you have planned next? Um, I am, uh, so based upon the work of uh, Margin Lands, which, is, which talks mostly about um, the landscapes and the environmental degradation and the resilience, inherent resilience of the land which is being diminished, uh, I want to go to the next level and now see what happens to lives that are intimately connected to the land. So I will be doing a transect thanks to a grant from National Geographic Society. Um, I'll be walking, I'll be, I'll be traversing, I wouldn't say walking, I'll be traversing from the easternmost point of India to the westernmost point. So from the rainforest of Arunachal Pradesh to the salt pans of Kutch and uh, documenting soundscapes as well as um, as well as aspirations of people who live closest to the land um, and uh, and try to understand where uh, rural India is going and what is happening uh, to the people that uh, that live live in landscapes that may be devastated by Anthropocene um, changes as well as uh, as climate change awesome Thanks, Aarti, for talking to The Hindu, and we look forward to your next project. Thank you so much for having me, Divya, and The Hindu. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4, at the rate thehindu.co.in. 